for that welcome. It is delightful to be back. And um, it's the first time I've managed to bring my wife out to Moscow. She's never been to Moscow before. Gasp. How'd you find it, babe? Was it good? It's, it's everything that she had been told. And um, now, more seriously, we are, we are really grateful to you for the hospitality we've enjoyed from the Blakeys and from a number of other people already. Just grateful to be back and to see all these unfamiliar faces and some uh, familiar faces, some old friends. What a blessing for us, and I hope this will be a blessing for you. Let me lead us in prayer, and then we'll begin. Merciful and gracious God, your, world, your word calls us to uh, take seriously the challenges that we are likely to face as believers, seeking to live faithfully in a world that does not honor Christ. And so we pray that this evening and tomorrow morning you would equip us to do that just a little more faithfully, to see with greater clarity some of the ungodliness and destructive ideologies in the world around us, and perhaps more pointedly to see how those ideologies may have in unexpected ways either made their way into our churches or be influencing our churches even though they remain outside them. Watch over us, we pray, and open our eyes that we may perceive truth in your word and the world as it truly is. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I approach this subject in the same kind of spirit as Jude begins his letter. Beloved, though I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation and how wonderful it will be for him, I'm sure, to be able to speak about Christ and the gospel and the kingdom and the growth of the church and the glories of what Christ had accomplished, yet, he said, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that once for all was delivered to the saints because it turns out that the people that Jude was called to address were surrounded by and in danger of being undermined by ungodly and unchristian ideologies. And at some point, avoiding idolatry entails describing the idols with some detail. And so when uh, Pastor Handerman emailed me to say, would you come and talk about wokeness, my heart sank, actually. I'd like, can't I just come and talk about Jesus? And he said, well, you can come and talk about Jesus on Sunday, but we want you to talk about wokeness on Friday and Saturday. So I'm going to talk about Jesus on Sunday. But this is actually a dismal topic, and I'm going to begin in the most dismal place possible uh, by talking about uh, a mistake that was made by some of our brothers and sisters in Christ in the Southern Baptist Convention, who on the 1st of June 2009 officially adopted Resolution 9 on critical race theory and intersectionality. And in a key section in that resolution, they said this, and this is a quote, resolved... Southern Baptists will carefully analyze how the information gleaned from these tools, namely critical race theory and intersectionality, are used to address social dynamics. At the time, this provoked a storm of protest. Many conservative Christians in the Southern Baptist Convention were outraged and still insisting that this represents a departure from the gospel, that it represents an abandonment of biblical teaching. And so you go online to the Southern Baptist Convention website and you read the resolution and you start scratching your head because you might be forgiven for thinking what's all the fuss about. You read the resolution in full and you discover that it's full of biblical safeguards, that it affirms explicitly the authority of Scripture. It expressly says that critical race theory is only to be held subordinate to Scripture It affirms the insufficiency of critical race theory to diagnose and remedy the effects of sin. It says this can't do the job. Only the Bible, which speaks about Christ, can do that. Only the gospel can change hearts, and it explicitly repudiates misuse of insights from critical race theory. So here we are again, conservative hyper-reactionaries. What's all the fuss about? And I want to say... I'm afraid the fuss is warranted. There is a great deal to be concerned about, but the problems are more subtle than I'm afraid is normally realized. The resolution and the ideas that it represents are deeply problematic, in large part because they actually misconstrue. I don't know whether deliberately or accidentally, they misconstrue the nature of what they're talking about. They falsely describe 
critical race theory. And so they give the impression that it's more serious, uh, less serious, pardon me, than it actually is. The clue, actually, is buried in the preamble. Now, that's, of course, the best place to bury bad news, right? Because all the bits that say, whereas this and whereas that and whereas the other thing, there's 13 or 14 of them. Well, buried deep in the preamble is, whereas critical race theory is a set of analytical tools that explain how race has and continues to function in society. Whereas something else... Whoa, hold on a second. Twice more in the document, it describes critical race theory as an analytical tool. And this is the heart of the misunderstanding and the heart of the problem. The misunderstanding that critical race theory is a tool for analysis. That its goal is to help us to understand the world. To gather information about the world to form a clearer picture of the world. That is the misunderstanding that lies at the heart of our brothers and sisters in Christ in the Southern Baptist Convention adopting this resolution. And I'm afraid probably many of them have done so not realizing what they've led in the gates. They may still not realize the damage that it is going to cause and it has already caused. Because critical race theory is not an analytical tool. It is far more than that. In the background, we need to understand where this thing has come from. Critical race theory is a strand of what I, following most commentators who now speak about this, and even those who embrace it, have called critical social justice ideology. And it derives from critical theory. We're going to talk about this more in the next few minutes. It is not merely an analytical tool. Don't be deceived by the word theory. Theories normally are ways you understand things, correct? Like the theory of special relativity helps you understand something. (laughs) Or not, perhaps. (laughs) Theories, in common parlance, are exactly that, analytical tools. Critical race theory is not an analytical tool. It is a manifesto for change. It is an activist charter. It's not for understanding social dynamics. It's for changing society. And once you let it in the door, what it will try to do is not just to change your understanding of the world, but to change the way you live in it. That's why it's such a problem. In theological terms, it's actually an alternative eschatology. You're familiar with eschatology as not just a a vision of the future, but a vision of the whole of human history. From creation to new creation, you you get a sense of where we're going from where we began. And scripture tells us the story of human history, past, present, and future. Critical race theory is an alternative vision for human history and an alternative set of agendas for getting there. This conviction is actually reflected in the title of a recent book, which is is another one of those good but slightly frustrating books, Uh, by Charles Pincourt and James Lindsay. Charles Pincourt is not his real name. Uh, He's a professor of physics somewhere. He didn't want anybody to know who he really is. That's a clue, by the way. Uh, When you have to start hiding your real identity in order to criticize something... Right. Now, they explain in their book, which is called Counter-Woke-Craft. The word woke... I'll explain where that comes from later. Many of you have heard it. But they explain that wokeness, which is a colloquial term for the critical social justice ideology, is an ideology, but it's not just that. It's, it's a methodology for change. Uh, they use the word wokecraft, uh, adapting it from spycraft, uh, in the sense of this is how espionage works, this is how to do it. And they explain that the aim of this movement is not merely to inform us about anything. That's the crucial mistake And I want to really expand on that, um, both sketching in our first session this evening the background to this movement, where it's come from. I want us to be able to understand it more clearly. I'm afraid to say that sometimes Christians are satisfied with a very superficial understanding of things. It won't do to understand this one superficially. We really need to understand as clearly as we possibly can what this thing is and how it works. And then we'll actually start to be able to make sense of all the stuff that we see around us. So as I'm sketching the 
the philosophical and historical background and really broad brushstrokes are point to things in the contemporary world that many of you will be familiar with and some of you, I'm looking at you university age people, will be living through right now, especially if you're anywhere other than the college we all love down the road. And once we've done that, I'm going to go back to, I mean, uh, Pastor uh, uh, Ryan mentioned uh, Vodi Borkum, who was here in 2017. And I, I was... I went back and listened to those lectures. I'm like, why do they need me to go there? Have Just go back and listen to all he, he says. And I, I found it so encouraging, so insightful. He said all the things I wanted to say. <laughs> anyway, so thanks really for the curveball, this one. Um, what I want to do is to cram into five minutes everything he said. How's that for, like, special offer? Yeah. And, and then I want to to just highlight one thing that we've really got to get right. And then we'll start the second session, and, and I want to highlight some other things that we're talking about. So, you with me? So, sketch of the background, how it relates to stuff we're seeing today. Um, Vodi Borkum in the kind of... Who watched The Matrix? How many of you have watched The Matrix? Remember the bit where Neo learns Kung Fu? In, like, five seconds? <laughs> like that? Imagine getting Vodi Borkum like that. Wouldn't that be awesome? <laughs> Come back, Vodi. Um, and then we'll, just one big thing I want to highlight at the end that we've really got to get right here. Okay, so let me sketch the roots and the development of critical race theory and critical social justice ideology more broadly. It all traces its roots at least as far back as the 19th century and Karl Marx's theory of class warfare. You've all come across Karl Marx, some of you have read him. Marx asserted and argued that all of life ought to be conceived of as a conflict between two classes of people. The oppressive bourgeoisie, who were the bad guys, and the oppressed workers. And here's one crucial point about his way of looking at the world. Everything meaningful about you is determined by the class to which you belong. Marxism is not an individualist mindset at all. If you're a worker, that determines everything that's relevant about you morally and socially. And flip side, if you're a bourgeoisie overlord, then you're the oppressor, regardless of what you do as an individual. Now, the aim of the movement, Marxism, is to awaken class consciousness among the oppressed so that they start to realize their oppressed status and then they rise up and overthrow their oppressive bourgeoisie overlords. Now, awaken, remember that vocabulary, right? Because it's related to the woke terminology we'll get to later. Now, so that's Marxism. That's the background. Now, in the middle of the 20th century... The so-called Frankfurt School in Frankfurt, Germany, philosophy department, started to apply Marx's theoretical work in other domains, especially in the realm of culture. There's a whole ton of work has been done on this. Um, this is why you, you may have heard the phrase cultural Marxism. Heard that phrase? Okay, it's Marxism applied to culture. Marxist thinking applied to culture. So whereas... Marx said all of life is a conflict between the oppressed worker and the oppressive bourgeoisie. The Frankfurt School said all of life is a conflict between groups defined culturally. They used the term critical theory to describe this approach. But the critical theory was not just how you understand it. The critical theory was the activist methodology by which you go about changing it. So this is Max Horkheimer, a very famous one-liner that you can find all over the place. He said, critical theory is an attempt to liberate human beings from circumstances that enslave them. Notice, it is not an attempt to understand. It is an attempt to change people's circumstances. So what the Frankfurt School does is it gets Marx and imports it into, let's say, different domains of cultural life. Skin colour, for example... All of life is a conflict between the oppressed black people and the oppressive white people in our society. The aim of the movement is to cause black people to be awakened, woke, to their oppressed status so that they rise up and overthrow their white oppressors. And it doesn't matter whether you've ever done anything right or wrong as a white person because your moral standing is determined by your membership of that group. I hate speaking in these terms. Describing something so despicable in a Christian pulpit, isn't it horrible? But let's, let's sketch Baal so that we don't bow down to him, shall we? Or uh, imagine other domains. Um, over time, uh, critical theory was applied in gender, male and female initially, 
critical gender theory, queer theory, post-colonial theory, every other domain of life, in roughly the same way. Now, there are some differences. The way in which um, uh, the group identity is defined is different in relation to male-female than it is in black-white, which is why transgender is a thing, but transracial is not. Interesting. It's complex, right? But broadly speaking, this is what's going on. Now, start to see the contemporary connections. Can you see them? For example, your place in the world is determined by your group identity. That's Marx. And therefore, it's the Frankfurt School. So, nowadays, people face moral censure or moral praise simply because they're, let's say, white or black. White oppressors. Black victims is the narrative. Can you see? Regardless of a person's actions... Um, you find this at university students. You're, you go to the wrong college and you're the wrong group identity. You may be required to apologize for your complicity in the actions of people you've never met but who just share superficial genetic and physical characteristics with you because your moral status is determined by your membership of that group. You can start to see how this generates hatred between people, can't you? You know, these people you never met, you walk into a lecture room with them and suddenly you have to apologise to him and her. It's like, well, that's going to cause resentment <laughs> in bucket loads. It actually explains another feature of our contemporary society, which is the quest to cultivate victimhood. Think of it like this. If your status is determined by whether you're a member of an oppressed or an oppressor group, which group do you want to be a member of? Well, the group that has the high status. If you can find some way in which you are a member of an oppressed group, you kind of go to the higher up the pecking order morally and socially, which explains, explains all kinds of bizarre things, like why a, uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren, remember? With all the stuff about her Native American background. Remember that? Why would she have made those claims? Because even back in the 90s, even back then, there was moral cachet in being part of an oppressed minority group. The key to the revolution is to awaken class consciousness. That's where the vocabulary of woke comes from. And, and in, that's not a, uh, a derogatory term. People who, who uh, regard this as a good thing will use that term about themselves, and it's a Marxist term. It's just worth knowing that. Um, notice also the totalizing element here. Marxism is not just like a, a thing you can do while you get on with the rest of your life and it doesn't change anything. It has a religious totalizing character to it and that totalizing element is imported then into the cultural sphere. So let me give you some examples. Let's imagine that you are um, you work for an ice cream company. Imagine that, Ben and Jerry's or something. You thought your job was to sell ice cream. <laughs> yeah, think again. So Ben and Jerry's have imported, and this is quite well known, they're kind of on the cutting edge of this stuff, they've imported into their um, values and uh, mission statements commitments to aspects of critical social justice ideology. And so what's actually going to happen in the future, I'm not a prophet or a son of a prophet, but I hereby make a prediction, what's going to happen in 5, 10, 15 years' time in a board meeting at Ben and Jerry's is somebody's going to put their hand up and say, because it will be the critical social justice activist on the board of the company. They're going to put their hand up and they'll say, okay, so what percentage of our revenue are we spending on critical social justice activism? And the finance guy is going to say, oh, 7%, very proudly. And they'll get stares, horror-stricken gaze from the critical social justice uh, cabal on the board, like, well, what are we spending the other 93% on? Because what we do now is promulgate critical social justice ideology, and selling ice cream is a means to that end. It's why Starbucks closed everything down for a day to provide um, implicit bias training. Why would you do that? Why would you stop selling coffee in order to do this? Well, it's because you're not really about selling coffee anymore. The totalizing character of this ideology has come all the way from Marx through the Frankfurt School, and now it's in our boardrooms. It also explains why um, you can get into trouble for not saying anything. You've, all, you've heard celebrities called out for not 
making a statement on Twitter about something, as though Twitter is a thing. I can't remember who it was who said it. You know, Twitter is not a real place. <laughs> anyway, but uh, silence is violence. You've heard that? Why? Why? Well, because you're either with us or you're against us. There's no neutral ground here. And if everyone else is criticizing somebody and you don't criticize them, then you're against the critics, which means you're against the revolution, which means you're on the wrong side of history. So just not saying something is like um, somebody deserting on the front lines of battle within this framework. Now, the practical outworking of this, the whole movement, critical theory and critical social justice ideology, was informed by Antonio Gramsci's theory of cultural hegemony. Hands up if you heard of Antonio Gramsci, Italian, Marxist, late 19th, early 20th century. Died quite young because he was imprisoned in 1926 in horrible conditions. All his teeth fell out, terribly ill. While in prison, he wrote extensively thousands of pages of what came to be known as the prison notebooks. And I've not read all the prison notebooks. Probably Dr. Schlecht has read all the prison notebooks because he's a proper historian. But, yeah, sorry, no, everyone's going to be, Dr. Schlecht, please tell us about... Okay. One of the the central themes of Gramsci's work was this. The way in which the bourgeoisie, remember he's a, a Marxist, the way in which the bourgeoisie maintain power is not always through the same good old fashioned tyranny, violence and threats of violence. That's how classic dictatorships work, isn't it? Enough violence to people you know to make you fear violence for yourself, so you just comply. That's how tyranny works in a kind of uh, dark, dystopian, uh, tyranny 101 picture of how to run a failed state. Well, uh, um, Gramsci realized that's not how um, the bourgeoisie actually maintain power. The way they do it is by controlling the institutions of society. Political parties... Trades unions, media schools, churches, charities, voluntary associations, legal associations. In other words, it's through the institutions that these oppressive bourgeoisie are controlling all these oppressed workers. So what's the solution? How must the revolution take place? It doesn't need to be a violent revolution. If the power is maintained by institutional control, wielded by bureaucrats, what do you need to do? Just control the institutions. And so Gramsci uh, developed this theory of how to bring about the revolution, the Marxist revolution, and that insight was then imported into the Frankfurt School's critical theory and critical social justice ideology. So now, think, think, think. How are you expecting critical social justice activists to do their work? Violence? Threats of violence? Sometimes. Much more of the time... Control of the institutions. This was made explicit by one German socialist activist, Rudi Dutschke, in 1967. He spoke of the long march through the institutions. In the 60s, all those people who went to Woodstock, when they went home, they didn't do nothing. They became university professors. They became trade union leaders. They became politicians. They became senior executives, they became administrators of school boards, they did things to take control of the bureaucratic structures that organized the society that we're a part of. And now just think, just look around you, think for a second. How successful has that been? Two, two and a half generations. Media. (laughs) Has anybody noticed a slight leftward tilt in the mainstream media? Ever. Why? Why would that be? A self-conscious effort to control the institutions. It's a really interesting eschatology, isn't it? It's long-term. It's optimistic. Yes? Uh, Education. It's fascinating to me. It's absolutely fascinating to me. You you see these uh, YouTube videos that people take in school board meetings where they're outraged about the stuff that's being taught to their kids. In every single case, the school board is these progressive wackos, and all the parents are, like, tearing their hair out. Like, where did these people come from? They don't represent us. How how did you end up in this position of power over our children's education 
The answer is, very deliberately, long march through the institutions, decades of self-conscious commitment to control the structures of society by which power is wielded. Corporate world is very easily captured. And this is, this is chilling. Um, and this is where it starts to get really practical because um, it can be done by people who are extremely junior. Imagine you've got a small company, medium-sized company. Maybe there's 50, 60, 80 employees. And you've got you know, a small human resources department. And there's one um, fairly junior college graduate who is the kind of she kind of runs everything, or he kind of runs everything behind the scenes. There's a Slack channel, and they kind of manage that, right? And then what they they notice, they say, look, um, uh, we've noticed that sometimes some of our employees get offended by what people say on the Slack channel. Now, nobody wants to have offended employees, so what's he going to say next? Listen, why don't I just draw up a a kind of a code of conduct or guidelines? It's a speech code, okay? But, no, guidelines for how people should talk to each other on the Slack channel. And the CEO, what are you going to say? So, no, we don't want that because people are offended and I don't care. No, no, it's much easier just to say, you know what, that's a really good idea. I don't want that job. So you go ahead and do it. Give it to the 23-year-old media studies graduate who you hired six months ago. And so he comes back and he's got this kind of long, long, long thing. And one of the things it says is we must respect one another in the way that we address one another. That's all it says. It's all it needs to say. And the CEO signs off on it. What you've just signed off on is if I change my name from Bruce to Caitlin, I get to tell you what's respectful. So it's Caitlin, she, her. Thank you. Now, what you've done there, you've not just changed how people relate to each other, you've imported an entire ideology of what gender is simply by writing an administrative document that now even the CEO has to comply with because even, this is a fascinating thing, even the CEO has to comply with the administrators. Who are the really, really powerful people in the organization? The administrators. And it's not just, I need to be respectful to you, it's my speech now embodies a vision of what gender is, and therefore what a person is, and therefore what a man is and what a woman is, which is entirely inimical to what the Bible says, and is completely novel. And 100 years ago, nobody even dreamed of it. And you've done it, you're 23 years old, and you're the most junior member of staff in the Human Resources Department. Higher education. This is probably the place where the, the statistical move has been most clearly seen. If you go back... Uh, 50, 60 years, maybe, no, 70 years now, you find that the political biases of college professors roughly represents the political biases of people in mainstream America. So about 50-50 will be registered conservatives, re- registered Republicans, if they're registered anything. Okay. You know what the ratio is now? Somewhere between 4 to 1 and 17 to 1. Democrat, Republican. Now, I'm not saying... Democrat, Republican is like evil good. I'm just saying it's a representative picture of how higher education has changed in those years. In fact, there was the survey that was done um, included, I think it was MIT and a couple of other places, that the statistics didn't really work when you're doing ratios because they couldn't find a single conservative on the faculty of the institution. I think Gramsci's done quite well, hasn't he? Now, the revolution of which Gramsci spoke, picking up Marx before him, need not be entirely peaceful. This was the critical insight of Herbert Marcuse, prominent scholar of the Frankfurt School. He wrote an influential essay called Repressive Tolerance in the 60s. And he explains quite explicitly that physical violence is justifiable when practiced by the oppressed against their oppressors. You think, just pause for one second. Who are the, the oppressed exactly in... Marcuse's vision. The oppressed, in his view, are those on the political left, and the oppressors are political conservatives, which means that built in to critical social justice ideology from the 60s onwards is a fundamental asymmetry that extends not just to actions but to everything else, especially because now speech is violence within this framework. You see this actually in um, 
It's another connection you see in the modern world. Have you noticed the asymmetry in social reactions to um, overstatements on the political right and the political left, right? So a guy can stand up at the Oscars and say, F Trump, and everyone cheers. Somebody says, let's go, Brandon, and the entire world goes berserk. Now, what's going on there? And we're, we're, You may be tempted to say, oh, it's just hypocrisy. How ludicrous, how childish, how insulting. And how one-sided to be willing to tolerate and celebrate this, but denounce that. And that's true, but no, you've got to go much deeper than that. This is, it's all in Marcuse. There is a basic asymmetry between statements made by political and social conservatives and statements made by political and social revolutionaries. You can already see the um, connection with postmodernism here and there. This was made explicit by Michael Foucault in the 70s. Um, and goodness, let's try and summarize him in one minute. Um, at the heart of what he wants to say that's relevant to this is the claim that there's either no such thing as truth at all, or if there is truth, it can't be known objectiv- ob- objectively. This is kind of familiar postmodern thing, right? That's, that's become quite well known. And what that means is, then, that all claims to truth are, in fact, disguised tools of manipulation. So just think about it. Think for a second. If what is true either is not a thing at all or, or we could never discover it, if I claim to have the truth, what I'm really trying to do is steer the conversation in a certain way, manipulate people in certain directions. And claims to truth within Foucault's framework, which is just everywhere now because of postmodernism, is uh, uh, the claims to truth are used by oppressors to keep the oppressed in their place. That's basically the way that language is now viewed. Which means that if you're trying to unpick that, if you're trying to reverse direction, what you're wanting to say is, look, the proper aim of discourse is not to discover the truth. This is just postmodernism 101. The proper aim of discourse is not to discover what's true, because it can't be known, or there is no truth, or something. The proper aim of discourse is to unmask the way in which truth claims are being used to oppress people. You with me? That's what deconstruction is. Deconstruction is the attempt to reveal how your claims to have the truth are actually tools of political manipulation. Now, why is this relevant? Well, no platforming. You come across this? Seems so arbitrary, doesn't it? Seems so bizarre. What do we want to... We would be happy, in the right context, to hear somebody with whom we disagreed, correct? And especially in universities, of all places. Universities are places where you're supposed to be exposed to alternate voices, hear discussion, hear debate, and so on, so that you can decide what's true. You want to hear what this person says, you want to hear what this person says, you want to hear what this person says, and then you can think about it and decide what's true. No, 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 not anymore. Because there is no such thing as truth. We already know what's right and wrong, and we know that anybody who claims to be speaking truth which disagrees with us is actually an oppressor. What do you do with an oppressor? You silence them. No platform. That's, that's the ideological basis, the ideological roots of that. Even people who you might think would be on the side of the radical progressive left, people like Jermaine Greer, old school feminists, have been no platformed because they refuse to comply with this ideology. Now, all of this was applied specifically to race, and this is significant because this is going to be more, well, this will require us to do some soul-searching personally. This was all applied specifically to race by Derek Bell, legal scholar from Harvard in the 70s. He's the guy who coined the term critical race theory. He famously insisted that racism is the ordinary state of society. Even attempts by white people to oppose racism are motivated by what he called cynical self-interest. His student, Kimberly Crenshaw, introduced the term intersectionality, which you remember back with the Southern Baptist Convention, their statement. Intersectionality refers to the claim that many people exist at the intersection, so-called, of more than one oppressed identity. You might be uh, an immigrant 
<laughs> I guess I'm oppressed. <laughs> Immigrant black female. And so uh, there, there's a complex landscape of overlapping and uh, interacting oppressed identities, which gives you a very complex set of moral hierarchies that are built into who you are, what group identities you're in, not who you are as a person. Uh, And the implications of all this have been seen uh, really, really uh, forcefully in the last few years. Um, The implications are that racism is everywhere. There's no such thing as a non-racist society. The denial of this is so-called white fragility. You may have heard that phrase. Uh, It's the attempt of white oppressive people to deny that there's really a problem in order to maintain the status quo and keep the oppressed in their place. This is why in colleges and universities you're required to confess your white privilege if you're a white person. Because you are privileged. You must be because you're white and there's racism everywhere and you're the oppressor. So you should confess that and acknowledge that. That's That's the ideological background to it. It also means that every time there is a difference in outcomes of any process, we know that racism is the reason why, or at least discrimination is the reason why. Why is that? Well, think. Your group identity determines everything about you. It's nothing to do with your individual characteristics, who you might be as a person individually. And therefore, what we must do is to go looking within institutions, educational institutions, employment institutions, everywhere else, to try to find and uncover the sources of racism. And we start by confessing our own, whether or not we can imagine them. When you find that you've isolated all the kinds of sources of racism that you think you can, and you still notice there are disparities, we know a priori that that must be because of racism as well. What do we call that? That's systemic racism. Systemic racism is the name for the the racism that we must that we know must be there to account for the disparities in outcomes that we can't account for in any other way. Because everything is determined by your group identity. And because everything is identified, um, uh, exhaustively uh, determined by the group you're a member of, there's absolutely no possibility of change. Absolutely no possibility of repentance. Absolutely no possibility of forgiveness. You remain a transgressor even while you try to make amends because self-interest, cynical self-interest. The deep irony of all this. One of the most prominent activists for critical race theory is a white woman, Robin DiAngelo. And part of me wants to pity her. Uh, Peddling an ideology that makes her an irredeemable sinner by virtue of who she is. Now, in keeping with all this background, it's post-Marxist and it's post-modern, critical social justice activists will routinely redefine familiar, acceptable terminology in order to introduce this stuff into institutions. Now, uh, this is part of the... Uh, explanation you get in James Lindsay's book, um, uh, uh, Wokecraft, um, the one with um, the guy who had to change his name. Um, consider just three examples, and I'm looking at my watch. I think we'll finish. I've got a few more. Th- I wanted to talk about Voddy's stuff, but I'll, we'll find a way of squeezing that in next. Okay. Um, consider diversity, equity, inclusion. Yeah, now, Imagine yourself in a board meeting. Who's, who's going to be against diversity, equity, and inclusion? Right? Those are good things, right? Diversity understood as a, a wide range of gifts and experiences so we can all contribute different talents and so on to a common project. Uh, equity, we treat each pe- everybody fairly. We don't have uh, different rules for different people. We've got a level playing field so that the best people can advance and do well and those who aren't doing so well, will know they're not doing so well. Inclusion, well, we don't want to be excluding anybody from anything, do we? Who wants to be discriminated against unjustly? So diversity, equity, and inclusion, these have become kind of headline characteristics 
by which the movement is peddled, but they have become such because the terms have been redefined. So diversity is redefined as, well, think, what matters is group identity. What doesn't matter is your gifts or your experience or your talents or your qualifications or what you can bring to the organisation because of those things. What matters is whether you're male, female, black, white, gay, straight, etc., etc., etc. So diversity means simply a diverse range of different group identities all committed to the common critical social justice project. That's what diversity has come to mean. Equity does not mean we treat everybody fairly. One law for both the native-born and the sojourner. What equity means is equality of outcomes, which means we must tweak whatever we need to change in the processes to produce equality of outcomes. What equity actually does is discriminate against people who are doing well in order to balance the outcomes in terms of group identity, because remember, group identity is the only thing that matters, and inclusion has to end up meaning exclusion. Here's why. Because if I'm an oppressed minority and I feel threatened in any way, I need to have a space created for me where I don't feel like that, which might mean you need to leave. I need a safe space. You're not welcome here. And so diversity becomes uniformity, equity becomes discrimination, and exclusion, inclusion becomes exclusion. And it's all done by, well, in a boardroom, it's done by a 23-year-old new hire out of some university somewhere. The result will be you get a small number of people who really know what they're doing and a large number of people who just have no idea but are swept along, encouraged, sometimes cajoled, sometimes intimidated. Do you want to be the one who's against inclusion? With the result that organisations of every kind across the whole of the Western world are being swept along by an ideology that is about as anti-Christian as it's possible to imagine. Now, my justification for that claim that it's about as anti-Christian as it's possible to imagine was going to come from my five-minute compressed summary of Vody Borkham's talks from 2017. But I'm looking at my watch here. I'm wondering, should we pause now for ten minutes, come back later, or do you want me to carry on with that, um, probably seven or eight minutes in total. What should we do? Carry on with that. Carry, carry on, right, okay. Okay, hold on. We'll see what we can do. My apologies to Vody Borkham if I'm misspeaking. Go back and listen to his talks. They're awesome. Four talks. Talk number one, secular humanism and Christian theism give radically different answers to the basic questions of life. Who am I? Why am I here? What's wrong with the world? How can what's wrong be made right? Secular humanism, Dr. Borkham says, says I'm the result of random evolutionary processes, identity. My purpose is just to consume and enjoy life. The problem is whatever impinges on my consumption and enjoyment, which is lack of education and lack of government. And so the solution is always more education, more government. So all you need is big government to tell you what to do. Sound familiar? Right. What's the Christian vision of identity, purpose, the human problem, and the human solution? This, is, this crystallized so wonderfully, something so straightforward and so refreshing. I'm made in the image of God, and so are you. All of us are glorious image bearers of the living God. The purpose of human life, what's human life for? Well, it's for him, Colossians chapter 1. Everything exists, including you and me, to bring glory to Christ. The implication of these first two, of course, is that I may pursue my desires, I may do what I want, but only insofar as I'm honouring the image of God in every single one of you and I'm seeking to bring glory to Christ. Then everything's going to be okay. So what's the problem? Well, the problem is sin, which is alienation from God, which causes alienation from one another. And the solution is reconciliation in Christ, because when we're reconciled in Christ, then we're reconciled with each other, and you're stuck with her, and she's stuck with him, and I'm stuck with all of you, and... That's how we solve the human problem. So in a perfect world, everything is ordered wonderfully so as to bring glory to God and reconcile everyone with each other. Right, that's talk one. Talk two, attacks the modern concept of race. I'm so glad he did this because I so wanted to do it myself. The contemporary definition of race, which is a recent innovation, divides people up into different groups on the basis of superficial characteristics, hair colour, eye colour, skin colour, 
whether or not you can roll your tongue like this. Genetic characteristics, and most commonly, skin colour, let's be honest. That's not the historic definition of race. Dr. Borkham reminds us the older definition is more biblical. The race of a person, a race refers to any group of people who descend from a single descendant, and the descendant is called the stock. And so we're actually all one race. There is only one race. And every time I say racism, I feel like I want to insert this qualification. I know I've been talking now 50 minutes. Please wake your neighbor up and hear this. When I say race in the sense of racism, I am doing so with gritted teeth, employing a term that is used by anti-Christian activists in a way that ought not to be embraced. We are one race because we are all descended from Adam. We're all descended from Noah. We're actually, if we're in Christ, we're all sons and daughters of one heavenly father, all members of one adopted family. We're united fundamentally. There was actually... Um, there, there is, sorry, actually a, a, a distinction within the one race of humanity, but it's the distinction between those who are and those who aren't adopted sons of the Heavenly Father. It's those who are in Christ and those who are not. That's the meaningful distinction. But we're all still made in, Cal- in God's image, and as Calvin reminds us, we're, we're to love the image of God, even in those who hate us. Talk two. Talk three. There was once another distinction within humanity, the Jew-Gentile distinction, Ephesians 2, but God has overcome that, and if he can overcome that one, he can overcome all of them. And there's this great line from Vody. He says, I don't seek racial reconciliation. (gasps) I acknowledge it. (sighs) You see? We are reconciled in Christ. And then fourth talk, what does it look like when we live this out in practice? Well, he draws on Acts 6, and you've got this grievance between the Hellenistic and the Hebraic widows, and it's interesting because... The the leaders of the church don't ignore the differences in background. They know that sin can make people hostile to one another because we're different. But they don't embrace some kind of childish uh, felt need for representation. We need a Hebraic deacon and we need a Hebrew deacon. No, no. They find godly men full of the spirit and wisdom and they bang enough heads together to get the matter sorted out. And you see true justice when the fruit of the gospel is shown. And men and women lay down their lives to, uh, for one another to the glory of God. Right, so all that means, and we're really coming to, oh man, we're almost on time. How's that? No, 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 time to start. <laughs> all that means that there's one thing that we, are, we, are, we cannot go any further unless we get this right. We have to actually drive out all actual discrimination, all actual ungodly discrimination has to be banished from our churches. We're going to be talking about some kind of complex things in the next day and a bit. We've already talked about a whole bunch of complicated things. We, we must not get up ourselves if we are not doing the basic thing with such diligence and thoughtfulness and prayerfulness and commitment. We must not be a racist community. The question of race is actually the most tense one. We all know it is, and we all know why. There is actually a history of racism in the West. There is in my country. There is in this country. And that history extends to the church as well. I have a neighbor, elderly gentleman, by the name of Mr. White. He introduced himself to me as Lee, but he's 83 years old. I'm not going to call a man of that age. He's Lee, his first name, Mr. White, lovely elderly gentleman. He's got a neck breather. He's a tracheostomy. I went for, we get on really well. He's been so gracious and kind to me. He's a black man. We went, I went for a walk one evening just around the block, and he's next door. And he, he said, hey, what are you doing? Uh, obviously, he can't talk very loudly. And, and um, so I went and tapped to him. I said, I'm going for a walk. Do you want to come? And yeah. So we went for a walk. And we, walk, and we didn't talk much because talking is difficult for him because he, he has to put his finger here and then talks in a very raspy voice. After about two or three minutes, he said, when I was your age, this wasn't possible. White man and a black man going for a walk. I wonder, in fact, I'm pretty convinced that critical social justice ideology is God's judgment against some parts of the church. Uh, In our past, uh, some of our forebears, and God forbid any of us, have 
wanted a world in which people were judged by the color of their skin and not the content of their personality. And God's like, where's that Romans 1 bit? Oh, yeah. Let's, let's, we can do that. We can give you a world in which people are judged by their group identity, and let's see how you like that. And if we don't want to fall under this judgment, we must make sure there's no actual racism in our churches. It's difficult in the world that critical social justice ideology presents us with because they want to roll all kinds of discrimination into the same box. Male, female, gay, straight, black, white. That's really interesting and really difficult because what do you want to say about those two things? Well, gay, straight, that's a, that's a lifestyle choice. And one of those choices is an ungodly lifestyle choice, and we want to call people to repent from it lovingly and graciously. Male, female, that's a created difference that actually has great significance in all kinds of different areas of life, which we want to embrace and encourage, while at the same time holding one another in the highest dignity, because image of God. Black, white needs to start meaning to us about as little as ginger, brown, gray, or blue, green eyes, or I can roll my tongue and you can't. It is about half a dozen genetic changes. That's what it is. Our goal should be, and all of us know that um, there are aspects of Martin Luther King's personal life that are deeply regrettable, but our goal should be what he articulated in his greatest work, where we have a colorblind society where we are judged not by the color of our skin, but by the content of our character. The, the, the real test case, I'm going to come back to this in the fourth talk, because we're going to have to revisit some of this again. The real test case will be the situation that you may face in the future. You may have seen it now in your community here, where a white man and a black woman start dating, and then get engaged, and then get married. And if there is the slightest flicker of uncertainty, surprise, concern, anything. You will know that there's something down there that needs to be repented of. We do not need to go about repenting of other people's sins, but we need to repent of our own. 